I'm not ignorant to the fact that in a series of messages like we're doing, it can be easy to lose the train of thought. And if I hadn't written everything down and mapped out everything that I'm doing, I would probably have lost my place now as well. So I want to just quickly and briefly restate what we're doing. Our subject is unity amongst the saints in the church, taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, where Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be of the same mind and of the same judgment. We're opening that up. The doctrine has been, the way that I'm summarizing all of this has been, Obtaining and maintaining unity must be among our primary and consistent labors as a church. We're going to continue to open up that statement as we move along. Unity, if I had to define it, or if if you asked, what does this unity look like? I defined it as the corporate pursuit of doctrinal and practical harmony. So you hear... You hear the word unity and you think, oh, sitting around a campfire holding hands. No, that's not it. Um, Meeting at the same building at the same time on the same day of the week, every week. That's unity. No, that's not it. It's more than that. It's the corporate, all of us, pursuit. A corporate pursuit of doctrinal, doctrine, and practical, that's living out the teaching of the Scriptures, Doctrinal and practical harmony. That's unity. To say that obtaining and maintaining this corporate pursuit of doctrinal and practical harmony must be among our primary and consistent labors as a church is to say, in short, unity must be a priority. It must be. I'm trying to prove that. It must be a priority. You say, prove it. Okay, I'm I'm trying. So far we've looked at four places in the New Testament, uh, significant places where this the subject of unity is is front and center. John 17, the high priestly prayer of the Lord. Acts chapter 2, the very first response to the preaching of the gospel after the resurrection of Christ. Two weeks ago we looked at Romans 12 and Ephesians 4, uh, towering... um, Feasts of rich doctrine, Romans and Ephesians. And yet as soon as the apostle shifts to make the doctrine applicable in the practical life of a a believer, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, he immediately goes into how we treat one another, how we live as Christians and how we uh, have relationships with our brothers and sisters. Now we're going to move to the second way in which we might or by which we might determine the amount of emphasis that the Spirit of God has placed on a particular subject in Scripture, which is the language that is used in the references. So we'll go, go back a few weeks and remember this is the illustration that I gave. Think about the language. I did this with my children. I'm not going to raise my eyebrows. I'm not going to lower my eyebrows. I'm not going to yell. I'm not going to get soft. I'm going to try to stay calm and see if you can tell just by the language which of these statements 
carries the most weight. Number one, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my kinsmen according to the flesh. That's one. Second statement, bodily training is of some value. Now when you hear just the words, I think you would, you would be able to understand that what he said first about being accursed, cut off, that's clearly a weightier matter to him than bodily exercise. Just because of the, the words that he used. I could wish that I myself were accursed. Paul is saying essentially, I almost wish that I could be damned if I knew that that would mean the salvation of my kinsmen. Just in the words, we tell that there is a greater priority given. So what are we going to do today? We're going to look very briefly at ten texts, ten portions of Scripture. We're going to do three things with them. We're going to read them. I'm going to show you how they relate to the subject of unity. And then I'm just going to say, look at the language that's used. It's clearly meant to be, uh, or, or meant to be taken as significant. Whether it's speaking of unity generally, whether it's speaking of some way that we might obtain or maintain unity, it's going to address that subject in some way. And then I'll say, and look what it says. This, this is no small matter. Nowhere do we see in Scripture... Obtaining unity is of some value. We never see that. It's a priority. It's significant. That's what I want you to see. The goal is that with each text, you'll see that the language that's used is not vague. It's not obscure. It's not ambiguous. It's not unclear. It doesn't leave us wondering what we should do. In other words, when we read the Scriptures on this particular matter, the ball is not put in our court. And the Spirit says, well, you, you make of it what you will. No, we can see it very clearly. The, the Spirit of God says, this is how you ought to understand these things. So, the first one is Psalm 133. So turn there with me. Psalm 133. Some of you have probably been wondering, when are we going to get to Psalm 133? And I have, I have thought that this would be a... a, a it is a sermon in itself, many sermons in itself, but we're just going to look at it briefly. Psalm 133. Number one, read it. A song of ascents of David. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. We've read it. Now, second observation, how does this psalm reference unity? Now, like I said, many things could be said about this psalm. It's hard, it's hard not to see it. But just in case you missed it, verse 1, the theme of the whole psalm is set forth as this, when brothers dwell in unity. That's the theme of the whole psalm. Now we could make a big point there, but just notice first, 
He mentions brothers. I don't think he's talking about siblings. I think he's talking about spiritual brothers. As we see, it's a psalm of ascents. The context is that, is that the people of God are going up to Jerusalem to worship. The, the brotherhood here is found in their joint worship. They're going together to worship. The, the, this is a shadow or a type, the antitype or the fulfillment being all of the saints of God, specifically when they gather together for worship. It's a unity in worship. Uh, and I would say most specifically it would apply when we as a church gather for worship. He says how pleasant it is when these brothers dwell or settle, sit down. That's what that word dwell means. To take up a lasting, enduring habitation. This is not passing by one another. Hey, good morning. How are you? Did you have a good week? Hey, we'll see you all later. Y'all have a good week. No, this is settling down and dwelling with one another together in unity or simply dwell together. How pleasant it is when brothers dwell together. And the term that's used here implies community. It implies uh, communion and interchange between people. Again, this is not a quick passing. The reference that the psalm is about unity. That's what it's about. Now, then thirdly, note the language that's used. Now, I could, I could stop here and say, we have an entire psalm devoted to this one thing. How many psalms do we know of that we could say that entire psalm is devoted to one single theme. Most of them have very many themes. Trace, trace a thought of David from, from sorrow, as we just sang, sorrow and trial all the way to joy. They sort of make a journey in thought. But there aren't very many psalms that we could say, this is the psalm about blank. Psalm about repentance. Psalm 51. Psalm about unity. Psalm 133. Now we could stop there. But notice the language. He says, it begins with this word, Behold. The first note that is struck is one which calls us to look and see. The unity is here commended to us for our observation. David says, look at it. Gaze at it. Ponder it. Think about it. David is saying, in effect, can't you see how wonderful this is? It should catch our attention. I believe it was Calvin, I didn't put a reference here, said that, quote, David would exhort all individually to study the maintenance of peace. Maintaining peace. I didn't get my language from Calvin, but that's the idea. Now, you might say that we read this and... David says, look, behold, it, it, this, is some, this is an amazing thing. Can't you see it? Look at it. Take note of it. You might think, well, I've been to a, a lot of churches and I don't see people bickering and fighting and arguing. It seems like a fairly normal thing for Christians to be at peace or for brothers to dwell together in peace. But remember, the unity that we're talking about, and I think that has to be being referenced here, is a corporate pursuit of doctrinal and practical harmony. In other words, this unity is rooted in belief and practice ordered by God Himself and His Word. Not merely the absence of strife. A lot of churches are very peaceful because everyone has already sort of... Uh, in, in their own minds, quietly agreed 
that we're not going to talk about doctrine or practice. We, we already know there are so many disagreements. Let's not get on. Let's not get too deep into belief. Let's not get too deep into practice and application and how we live. We'll just everybody agree to disagree and we'll be at peace. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about going headlong into the doctrine, running into the practice and the differences, and wrestling with them from Scripture all together. This is, this is an amazing thing. Behold, look at it. He says how good and pleasant, or how fitting, how delightful, how agreeable and joyous it is. The word pleasant here means sweet or lovely. Stirring up the affections in a pleasurable way. This is not bland. David says, David is not saying, unity, take it or leave it. It is what it is. No, he's saying this is, this is an, an appetizing, appealing thing. We're not able to remain neutral about this. It's pleasant. He says it's like the precious oil that was used to anoint Aaron. And again, there is, there's more in here. Than, than I even know. Definitely more than can be said. But I'll at least point out this. This was a specific oil prescribed in all of its ingredients by God, not able to be used anywhere else. One place. If you smelled this oil, you knew what that meant was somebody's being anointed. Nowhere else. Now, what does that tell us? Well, this, this unity, again, it's, it's not a common thing. It's, it's ordered and arranged especially by God. It's distinct. It's noticeable for those who have a sense for it. When you see it, you say, that's, that's the oil. I smell it. It's precious. It's, he goes on to say, it's like the dew of Hermon. The dew of Mount Hermon famously serve to nourish the whole region around. And so he says it's like the dew of Hermon that falls on the mountains of Zion, a different place. Dew, if you live in a place that's hot all during the day, the dew is a cooling and refreshing thing. But if you live in a place where there's not much rain, dew is what you have to have to live. You don't survive without the dew. It's a way that God waters the earth. Especially in places where rain isn't, isn't frequent, dew is the life of the region. Apart from the dew, everything dries up and dies. The soil turns to dust. The crops fail. Life ceases. But with the dew, all is frequently, every, every night, frequently and very often secretly nourished. It's not a downpour. People running and covering their heads to get out of the rain. No, it's, it, it comes almost imperceptibly. We, we talk about the dew falling. Anybody ever felt the dew falling out of the air? No, you, you just, it, it's just there, imperceptible nourishment. Life is sustained by the dew. And it says there the Lord commands the blessing. Where this unity exists, God commands the blessing, which is life forevermore. In other words, God, by His Spirit, stirs us up to unity then He commands the blessing to be where His people are dwelling together in unity so that wherever there's unity, we can expect this special blessing of life from God. Vitality, growth, health happens where there is unity. Now, can you see, just by the language that's used, that we should leave this psalm with a deep impression about this subject of unity? Hopefully you can say, when I read that, 
I conclude unity is important. It's a big deal. We should read this and say that this unity among the brethren is good and pleasing. It's not common. It's life-giving. It gives the hope of the blessing from God. And we ought to desire it. We ought to want it. Okay? That's text number one. Text number two, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And from here on out, we'll just work uh, sequentially through the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7. First, we'll read it. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Now, the main issue that's being addressed here is the fact that they were going to court before outsiders with one another. So you could imagine a member of this church taking another member of this church to court in the, the secular uh, court system. That's what's happening here. That's the context. But the more significant problem, as he says here, is that they have lawsuits at all. Like it's, it's a problem that you're going before outsiders to settle your issues. That's, that's bad. But you have lawsuits with one another? That's the context. Now how does this bring us into the, the realm or the theme of unity? Well, here the notion of unity is sort of seen in a secondary way because Paul's addressing particular attitudes and actions which will either be destructive to unity or conducive to unity. They are uh, they're destroying unity. They're not unified. He says, brother goes to law against brother. That's the opposite of unity. That's disunity. Number, verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another. Again, disunity, animosity, dissensions and strife. And so Paul is using the occasion of their disunity to push them back in the right direction, which would be ultimately obtaining and maintaining unity. All right, now notice the language that he uses. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Now that's meant to be taken rhetorically. He's, he's saying... It would be better to suffer wrong. It would be better for you to be defrauded than to continue in this way of disunity. In other words, to obtain and maintain unity, to be on that path, it would actually be better to suffer wrong, to be defrauded. A.A. A. Hodge puts it this way, quote, this is what Paul is telling them, submit to injustice and robbery, end quote. If that's what it takes to keep the unity. Jay Adams is a, one of the guys that may be the founder of, of the biblical counseling movement. He has some commentaries and he writes this, quote, If they can't resolve matters, then Paul asks, he asks, Why not take it on the chin? Now children, when somebody says take it on the chin, what they mean is, there's an instance where somebody's being hostile to you, like maybe they want to fight you, and you just say, here, go ahead, hit me, I'll take it, and we'll be done. I won't hit you back. Get, get it out of your system, hit me, and we'll go home. 
That's what it means to take it on the chin. That's what he says. That's what Paul's saying. Why not take it on the chin? Peacemaking is more important than, quote, getting justice. That is what Paul teaches. And then he says this, This is hard for many Christians to fathom because they have become so dreadfully self-centered. What about justice? What about what's right for me? What's right for me? What's right for me? Paul says, just let it go. Why not rather? You, you ought to rather just be mistreated and defrauded if that will hold the unity, if you can begin to work towards and maintain unity. So again, in the language used, we see that peacemaking or unity among the saints takes precedence over momentary justice and that we should rather prefer to suffer wrong and be defrauded than continue in hostility towards our brothers and sisters. They've done something wrong to you. Let it go. Just take it. Just absorb it. Let it go. That's what he's saying. All right, flip over a page or two to chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 13. Paul says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now the context here is that of eating food sacrificed to idols. Some people in the church at Corinth, because they came from a pagan background, their consciences were greatly offended by the idea of continuing to eat that food that they only associated with paganism. Their consciences were hurt. It would have been a stumbling block in their faith. It would have been a, a, a difficult hill for them to get over in being sanctified and growing and understanding how the grace of God works and how holiness applies. It was a struggle for them. And so for another brother to come along and eat that meat in front of them would have been putting a stumbling block in them. They would have had trouble to understand, how can this be that you're telling me that God has saved me out of that, completely rescued me from all that paganism, and yet you're still eating the meat? I'm not... It's hard for me to understand how that applies. It would have been a stumbling block. That's the context. Now, notice how he refers to unity. And again here, the reference to unity is addressed from its opposite because they are not unified. There's disunity or the the subject is disunity. Causing a brother to stumble is the opposite of unity. We can either engage in the process of pursuing doctrinal and practical harmony or I can do as I please. I can plead my own rights and liberties even at the cost of hindering the spiritual growth of a brother or sister but I can't do both. I've got to pick. That's what he's saying. You've got to pick. That's, that's how this is, uh, brings us into the realm of the subject of unity. Now notice what he says. Notice his language. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. In other words, Paul says, I would rather stop eating meat completely than to know that I had put a stumbling block in, 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 the, in front of the faith of a brother or sister. Their growth, their faith was so important to him that he said, if what I have to do is be a vegetarian for the rest of my life, that's what I'll do. I'll stop. Paul probably knew something of Matthew eighteen six, 
where the Lord Jesus said, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Paul says, If I got to pick between a millstone around my neck and the depth of the sea, or being a vegetarian, I'll, ta- I'll pass the salad. I'll take the salad, if that's what it takes. To summarize, remember that a distinctive point of, of unity is harmony. Harmonizing with others. Where there is harmony, you say, yeah, we, we have differences. Those differences are recognized and various opinions are held humbly. And for Paul here, the humble posture is shown in his willingness to live his life eating no meat if that's what it takes. I will give up meat completely. Not that it's wrong to eat meat. He knew it was right to eat meat. No problem with eating meat. But he says, if that's what I have to do, I'll do it. To maintain the unity, I'll give it up. I think that's strong language. That's a bold statement. He was willing to give up his liberties. Next passage, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. We read, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now that word, therefore, helps us to look back to what was just said. Remember originally, there would have been no chapter break here. So coming out of verses 31 and 32 into chapter 5, we see that he's speaking about interpersonal relationships in the church. That's the context. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved you or has loved us and gave Himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That, that's the context of this statement. Now notice how he refers to unity. We have this, I just want to point out this simple statement in verse 2. Walk in love. Anytime you see that language, we're, to, we're, we're, in the, we're in the neighborhood of obtaining and maintaining unity. That's what we're doing. Walk in love. Love toward one another. Love toward the saints. That's the, the context here. Walk or live your whole life in a way of love toward others. Now notice the language. Verse 1, be imitators of God. Verse 2, as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. Now you can see this is similar to what we saw in Ephesians. This is similar to what we saw in Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Here we're reminded that walking in love toward the saints is to imitate God. It's to imitate Christ. It's to love as Christ loved. Now to summarize, we could ask, do you want to be like God? Do you want to be like Christ? Paul's answer is, then walk in love toward His people. Love one another. That is what it is to share the family resemblance. 
is to love one another. That's what he's saying. To be kind and tenderhearted and forgiving one another and loving one another, that is to be an imitator of God because that's what He's done to us. Next is Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Philippians 1.27. Now when we read this, I think you'll, you'll notice that there is a, a great similarity between this and what we saw in Ephesians 4. Philippians 1.27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side, for the faith of the gospel. Did you notice the reference to unity? Do you see how we're, we're in that neighborhood? Almost exactly the same language as 1 Corinthians 1.10. Standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side. To be of one spirit is to be of a single shared character quality. To be of one mind is to be of a single shared psychology and thought life, thinking together of the same mind, and then striving side by side, uh, not, not striving against one another, but as if you're soldiers, shoulder to shoulder, in this fight for the faith of the gospel. That's unity. Now notice the language that's used. The beginning of the verse. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. A manner of life worthy of the gospel. So this, this type of uh, fighting or striving shoulder to shoulder labor for the sake of the gospel, the faith of the gospel in the church, that is the life worthy or befitting or proper to the very gospel of Jesus Christ. Now if I asked you, do you think you could ever live a life worthy of the gospel? Do you know the gospel? You and I are sinners by nature, from conception, enemies of God. We come out of the womb. The first opportunity that we get, we live out that rebellion. Rebels against God. If we could get a hold of Him and kill Him, we would by nature. And yet, He comes to us. He sends His Son into the world to take on flesh, because we are flesh, flesh and blood, to assume to Himself a human nature, to live in our place as our substitute, then to die in our place, taking our punishment upon Himself, and He's raised from the dead, showing that God is satisfied with His work, so that if we would simply look to Him and cast ourselves upon His mercy, we would be saved. Our enmity and our rebellion would be turned to adoration and love and worship, and then eventually He'll bring us into His presence forever. And now if I said, do you think you can live a life worthy of that? Most of us would say, no way. No way. Paul says, you can. Here's how you do it. Love one another. Be of the same mind. Be of the same spirit. Strive shoulder to shoulder for the faith of the gospel. Work hard 
as a church to make sure that this gospel is continually advanced in the world. That's the gospel-worthy life. That's what he's saying. So like in Ephesians 1, we see the pursuit of harmony and unity is the life worthy of the gospel here or worthy of the calling to which you've been called, worthy of what God has done. And again, we can think of all of the things that we might put in that, that, that hole. If somebody said, what would the life look like? That, that gospel-worthy life. We put all these extravagant things, these mighty exploits, all these things that would, in, would ensure that somebody writes a biography about us when we're dead. Paul says, be of the same mind, of the same spirit, Strive side by side together for the faith of the gospel. Pursue loving unity with one another. Move your eyes just down the page a little to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Paul again says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in unity count others more significant than yourselves. Notice the references to unity again. Same mind, same love, full accord, one mind... Then he gives them the negatives, what not to do. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Don't live all for yourself. That destroys unity. Rather, live in a way most conducive to unity. Humility. Count others more significant. Don't live all about yourself. Live all about other people. Don't be filled in your mind with thoughts about satisfying yourself and pleasing yourself. Be filled in your mind with thoughts of pleasing others and satisfying others. Count them more significant. And that's what builds, obtains, and maintains unity. Now, for the language that is used here, notice it's couched in these terms at the beginning of, back to verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. Now there are two parts to this. The first one is is the long string of things there. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Now we could open all of that up and I'm going to try to, as best I can, summarize it in short. What Paul is describing here, what he's saying is, if you have come under the most basic and common influences of the gospel... If you have truly come under the power of the gospel and it's had its real effects in a a most basic sense, if, if that is true of you, and then secondly, complete my joy. In other words, this pursuit of unity would be the thing that would give an overflow to Paul's joy. Paul's sitting in prison as he writes. And he says to them, in so many words, if the gospel has taken any root at all, if it's beginning to bear fruit, if you're you're receiving the full influences of all of this, 
And if you want to top off my joy, if you want to make me joyful, then pursue unity. Be of the same mind, the same love, in full accord of one mind. Again, Calvin comments here, Paul entreats by all means the Philippians mutually to cherish harmony among themselves, lest in the event of their being torn asunder by intestine contentions, that's internal strife, they should expose themselves to the impostures of false prophets. Now think about that. Intestine, internal, internal strife exposes you, the church, to the impostures of false apostles. Think about your body at war in itself, your physical body at war in itself, not able to sustain its own health. What does that do? It opens you up to viruses and things like that. It, that's, that's kind of what Calvin's saying. If the church as a body is, is uh, suffering internally in itself, all of a sudden it's vulnerable to all of these other things. He says, continuing, For when there are disagreements, there is invariably a door opened for Satan to disseminate impious doctrines. While agreement is the best bulwark for repelling them. Strength in the body, agreement, unity. That's the best bulwark against the darts of Satan. Now let's put this, as I was thinking through this, I put this together with the last passage. Talking about striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Fighting like soldiers, shoulder to shoulder in battle. And here, agreement is the best bulwark against the darts of Satan. Do you think that two men in a foxhole together with bullets flying, whizzing past their heads are bickering over personal preferences? They're not. They don't do that. Why? Because they're at battle. They got, they got bigger fish to fry. Petty differences are put aside when there's no war. To fight. When, when, do, when does that stuff come up when we're all sitting around the campfire? We're not fighting. We're relaxed. We're calm. No, 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 nothing coming at us from the outside. And then that's when we begin to, to nitpick. When there's... Yeah, in the form of a question. When is the time to sit around and nitpick one another over relatively insignificant differences? Well, when there's no war. And therefore, we put these two passages together and, and Calvin's comment there about agreement, we would assume or conclude that the people who aren't busy fighting for the sake of the gospel are the ones who have enough time to sit around and fight with all of the other Christians. They're not fighting for the gospel. They're not defending anything. They're sitting around studying how they can... all of the disagreements they have with all the other Christians. And if you look back in history, especially in times of great revival and great persecution, differences among Christians were at a, at, at a great minimum as far as what they would um, hold against one another. Right? They, they would, if you read men, they, they talk about putting aside differences. Why? Because we have to, we're, we're fighting a war here. Do you believe the gospel? Yeah, I believe the gospel. Okay, then that's what I need to know. Because they knew they were at battle. And, and some of you I mentioned... Uh, sitting in a meeting with, uh, with Paul Washer. And he, we were talking about the types of literature that might be sent out to other nations. And there were questions asked, well, what about this? Well, you know he believes this. What about this guy? Well, he believes this. And Washer said, I'm just happy to find somebody who believes in the deity of Christ. And, and he said, our, I think, quoting a movie, our allegiances are growing very thin. 
I just want to find somebody that agrees on the gospel. These other things, they can, they can be gone. But that's what happens. When we're not fighting for the sake of the gospel, that's when we have the time to sit around and start nitpicking and arguing over things that are not uh, consequential and irrelevant. The next passage is Colossians chapter 3. Verses 12 to 14. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now obviously the whole passage here is full of the language of unity and harmony, interpersonal relationships, how we relate to one another and treat one another. But focusing on verse 14, above all these put on love. There we have love again, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now with what weightiness does he mention this love? How, how, how powerful is this love? Again, it binds everything together in perfect harmony. Or, or you might read, it is the, bond, the perfect bond of unity or the bond of perfection. This love, if you can have this love, he's saying, this is like the glue above all glues. This one trait of love for one another. He says, it's, it's, it's above all. And the picture, I think, is, is almost like a robe draped over everything and holding everything in it so that if you will put on love all these other things, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. So we, we, we do divide those up and study them and, and try to exert them in particular. But Paul says, if you'll just put on love, all of that will come. You just, you just got to love each other and you'll be patient. If you love each other, you will be meek, etc. That's what he's saying. Love for the brethren undergirds, holds together, supports and strengthens every other one of these graces. So to summarize this text, in everything that God has called us to do toward one another, for one another, in pursuing unity and harmony, if we would just love each other, everything else will follow. Love. That's strong language. You do this one thing and everything else comes. Now that doesn't mean that we don't sit alone and, and say, Lord, I, I, need, I need help with patience and, and deal with them specifically. But ultimately, what is it going to come back to? Increase in me love for the brethren. You'll be patient with those that you love. We could go on down the line. Now the last three are in 1 John. So you can turn to 1 John chapter 2. And I'm going to put them all basically under the same category or same thought because they all teach the same thing. And this flows right out of what we just saw about love. Repeatedly, love is the undergirding grace or trait, fruit of the Spirit that brings about all these other things with it. Love, 1 John 2.10 Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, 
For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 1 John 4.12 No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. Now in all these verses, that one single all-encompassing trait is mentioned. Love. Love for one another. Whoever loves his brother... Beloved, let us love one another. If we love one another, we're talking about unity. That, that, that we could say is the fundamental trait that uh, would lead to and produce obtaining and maintaining unity, love. Now how strong is the language? 1 John 2.10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. 1 John 4.7, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 1 John 4.12, if we love one another, God abides in us. Those phrases, abides in the light, born of God, knows God, God abides in us. We, we could put all of those in the category of we could, with saying, this person has undergone the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. This is a Christian, in other words. These are ways of saying this person is the Christian. This one who loves his brother, who loves one another. The sense is this. The most basic building block and seed of unity, love for the brethren, is a distinctive trait of the new birth, of being a Christian. Where there is love, there you find a Christian. Where you have a Christian, there you'll have love for the brethren. They go together. But the opposite is also true. Where there is no love, there's no salvation. If you don't have love for the brethren, you're not a Christian. It doesn't matter what else you have. You're not a Christian. That's what he's saying. Whoever doesn't love, doesn't know God. Who does love, that one knows God. He's been born of God. You say, that's, that's strong language. It sounds like you're anathematizing people if they don't love. That's just what God's Word says. That's just Scripture. Love. So then, I would conclude from these passages that obtaining and maintaining unity must be among our primary and consistent labors as a church. It's not an option for us. If we desire to be within the will of God, we have to... Give ourselves to this. It has to be at the top of our priorities and it has to stay at the top of our priorities. The subject of unity is situated in some of the most conspicuous places in the New Testament Scriptures. And when it is addressed in many places, the language leaves us with no other option than to conclude that this is a matter of supreme importance. This is not an obscure thing. It must be a priority. Now then, how might we use this little exercise that we've just gone through in, in application? Hopefully, as everything that we've done has been application. But in going through these texts, what, how might we put this to use? I would say the first way we could use this is for information. Some people say, oh, we don't need information, we need... There's other things. Well, no, you, you need information. That's why we have the Bible. We need the, the data. We need what the Lord has said. So just let this inform 
your mind and hopefully your conscience, your heart. Unity among the saints is life-giving. Unity among the saints garners the blessing of God. Unity is more important than personal justice. Unity is more important than your freedoms and, or the freedoms of your Christian liberty. Pursuing unity through love is to imitate God. Striving for unity is a gospel-worthy endeavor. Aiming for unity is basic to Christianity. Unity among the saints completes the joy of your spiritual leaders. The love that is essential to this unity binds up and contains within it all other graces so that without love, whatever else you might attain is useless. And the love that is essential to unity is a non-negotiable mark of regeneration. Just let that sit in your mind. It's important that we know what God's Word has to say about issues. Knowing it. Knowing it is not all, but you can't go any further until you know it. So just think about that. But secondly, I think we could use all of this for reproof. Does this not reprove our thinking? Does it not show us where our thinking has been wrong? It reveals to us how often our thinking has been or maybe is at variance with God's Word. Does it not reprove us in our thinking to sit back and just notice or take note of the fact that we have thought at some time or another, maybe still think, that we might have a vibrant spiritual life on our own while we ignore our brothers and sisters. We, we drift into that thinking. We, we drift into that way of thought. Well, if I could just get myself and, and, and if I could just focus on me, 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 and ignore them, then... I'll grow. We often think that way. Does it not reprove us that we have often thought to, to pull down God's blessings upon us and our families and our, our church because we're active in other areas when we actually ignore or neglect unity in the body? Does it not reprove us in our thinking that we've been so often so diligent in and pursuant of our personal walk with the Lord, but we haven't been equally as diligent in our consideration of the body of Christ. I don't think we have to pick, but very often we just we fall into that mindset of thinking, it's all about me. It reproves us because we've often felt that our personal rights should be achieved or upheld or vindicated even at the cost of unity in the church, even, even if it means stumbling a brother or sister, these are my rights, these are my liberties. As soon as you think that way, your liberty has become an idol. It's not a liberty anymore. But we often think we need to champion our rights and our liberties, regardless of the cost. Doesn't it reprove us that we have often thought that God-likeness or Christ-likeness was summed up in so many other things and yet love and unity is actually secondary. That's a secondary thing. Again, you could put into that category whatever you please. It reproves us because we've often thought that the gospel-worthy life was summed up on our knees and in our study, but not really all that concerned with our brothers and sisters or brotherly love. 
We often think that our spiritual leaders in the faith would be thrilled to hear about how many books we've read, but they're not really paying attention to how I get along with my brothers and sisters in the church. Just personal experience or personal testimony as a, a pastor. I, don't, I really don't care how many books you've read. That's irrelevant to me. How many books you've bought, how many books you've owned, how many books you've read, how much, it doesn't matter to me. If we cannot love one another, it's useless to, in my thinking. Uh, I, and I say the same for me. I don't care how many books I've read if I can't love the brethren. It doesn't matter. And I don't, I don't want to pursue that one at the cost of the other. But we often think that way. This is what they want to see. They want to see me reading. Well, that's fine. But if you're not loving the brothers, I'm not really concerned. Maybe it reproves us because we have thought that the supreme bond of unity was doctrinal affirmation or intellectual assent rather than simply loving one another. Of course we're unified, right? I mean, we've got copies of our confession by the door. That doesn't mean we're unified. Doesn't it reprove us that we have often thought that we could sit alone and subjectively declare ourselves born of God because our thinking has changed on a few issues even though we have no love for the brethren. Y'all, converts to every religion shift in their thinking about their life prior to that and before it. That, that's, that's common. That's, that's what everybody does. You, you convert to Islam, you're going to give up pork. That, that doesn't mean you've been born again. That just means you've made the shift into that, that mindset. But one of the non-negotiables of being regenerate, being a child of God, is true love for the saints of God, the brethren. But we often think that that is, that is irrelevant if I have a personal experience changed in this way or that way. I think if we're honest, we would say that by and large, we have thought that unity was, is a good idea, that it's, it's nice to have, certainly makes for an enjoyable time when you're eating lunch and you're not fussing with people. It's a good thing to have, but, but in the grand scheme of Christianity and, and church life, take, I could take it or leave it. I just want to come and sit down and hear somebody preach a, a, a theologically sound sermon and then go home and that's all I want. That's a lot of the time that's the way we think. And I'm hoping that as we go through this, your thinking is changing by God's power. I know for me, as I've considered this and studied this, and, and, I, and I've been thinking and, and considering this matter for a lot longer than we've been going through it, and maybe that's the, 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 the reason that it's coming out in so much because it's, it's weighed on me so heavily for a while. But as I've seen how this is dealt with in Scripture, and over the years, having seen how many professing Christians there are that simply cannot get along with any other Christians for any length of time, that's changed the entire way I think about the gospel and salvation and the church and ministry. And, and you'll see this. So many people know so much. And those of you who work in a trade, you know that when, when a guy shows up and in his interview lets you know he already knows everything, you're thinking, I'd probably rather have somebody that didn't know anything if he's willing to be taught. 
you know, we're, we're here where we are, we do it this way. So just forget everything you've learned. It's kind of like that. You, you, you meet so many people who know so much and they meet you at the door telling you how much they know. We're, we're in, in, in agreement and we line up and this and that, but then you find out as you, the longer you go, they can't sit with any group of people for more than five years. They can't do it. Their pattern shows it. Now, and, and I've, I've told this story, I think you've all heard it. When I was in, in process of planting a church, the Southern Baptists told us, you plant a church, you have four years with the people in your church. Because this generation, this culture, they make major life decisions about every four to five years, which usually results in moving to different places. We, we, we don't live in a society of, of constancy anymore. We were talking this morning about a, a married couple that, that had been married for over 70 years. How many more times are we going to hear testimonies like that? It's very rare. How many times do you meet a man who says, yeah, I've been working at the same job for 20 years, 30 years? You don't, you don't hear that type of thing anymore. There, there's the, 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 the culture of constancy, of settling down, of planting yourself and not moving, that's almost gone. And that's what they said. This, this generation, they just don't do that. And as soon as I heard it, I said, I do not accept that. I will not accept that because I believe that God plants people. He fixes them. He gives them a backbone to be able to endure hardship and trials decade after decade after decade. I believe He can do that. Now, another thing that we often do, because most of us are young here, is we look around about us at all the, all the churches around. I've done this. We... We scoff and laugh at these older people who've been in these churches for decades. And we think, well, if they had any, any theological inclination, if they were growing, if, they, if anything was happening, they'd have got out of there you know, six or seven times by now. They'd be jumping all over the place. That's how you show you're mature, right? I'm, 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 I'm in the fast lane. Nobody can keep up with me. And we, we, we almost mock and belittle the fact that somebody actually has the wherewithal to say, no, I'm staying. I'm here. Now, I'm not saying stay in bad places. I'm not saying listen to heresy or false gospel. But I'm saying we, we think that's silly that somebody would say, no, this is my church. We, we laugh at it. But the longer you think about it, you say, that person has been putting up with that person for 40 years? That's some grace. That's some sanctifying work right there. When you, when you, you meet them, you get to know them personally. By the grace of the Lord Jesus, we can lay a, a thick, solid foundation for that in the years to come for our families and our children and grandchildren. And we'll see this matter bring forth uh, fruit in, in all of us and, and in this church. But we have, to, we have to fix it in our mind that there's more. The, the grace has to be worked in me. And if we... we wiggle our way out of every hardship and trial as we relate to one another, we're never sanctified. You don't grow that way. So, it reproves our thinking. Hopefully, your thinking will begin to shift on a lot of these things. Let's, let's take these things to the Lord in prayer. As we come to the Lord's table, remember, it is for members of our church only, but... Those who are not members, listen and think 
about the meaning of the Lord's table. One text that we read, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. When we come to the Lord's table, we fix our attention specifically on the death of Christ, the offering up of Himself in death, His body slain for us. Now this says that He gave Himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice. Now, we're not meant to take that as if the actual mutilated physical body of Christ somehow gave off a a scent that went up into the nostrils of God. God does not have a body. He does not have nostrils. What is this saying? This is saying that when Christ gave up Himself, His body in death, in our place, the Father received that as a sacrifice that was pleasing, acceptable. You could imagine smelling something really delightful and you say, I could smell that all day. That is the attitude of God toward the sacrifice of the Son. When the bread is broken, as you know, the bread, the breaking of the bread reminds us of Christ's body broken for us. He was broken for our salvation. Him for us. Now, there are many people who think that when they come to the Lord's Supper, or maybe you're just contemplating, maybe you're not coming to the table yet, but you're contemplating all this, and you might think, well, I know that I could not come to the table because I have sins. And maybe I should wait until I confess all of my many sins and then I'll come. I'll I'll get myself good and right with God and then I'll come. Listen, every one of us, every Christian who will come to the table today has sins, unconfessed sins, sins we don't even know we've committed. The purpose of the table is not get rid of them all and then come. The purpose of the table is a reminder that though we have sins because of what Christ has done, the Father is satisfied. He's pleased. He's received that that fragrant offering. It's almost as if He doesn't smell the stench of your sins because He is so delighted in what Christ has given. That's why it's a means of grace. We come to get grace. Why? Because we're sinners in need of grace. So as the elements are passed, everyone, give your thoughts to what Christ has done. Think about your sins. Confess them as the Lord makes them known. But recognize, we are not justified by confession. We're not justified by even our own repentance. We're justified by the work of Christ alone. So think on those things and then we'll come back to the table together.